Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. This is episode 318, Beyond Doubt. In his final teaching on the mystery of Christ, Steve shows us how a full understanding of the resurrection can change the way we interact with all of creation. Over the past number of months, we've looked at a lot of different aspects of the mystery of Christ. Uh, Paul referred to the mystery of Christ as the unsearchable riches in uh, Ephesians 3. Uh, So we've looked at a lot of different things. We've looked at Christ uh, beyond time and space and even matter. We've looked at uh, Christ in the Old Testament. And I've shared as a theme several times that that Christ is the interpretive key for the Old Testament. And we we talked about theophanies uh, or Christophanies. Both terms can be used interchangeably. um, Where Christ appears in the Old Testament narrative. We, uh, we talked about Christ and the Incarnation, in fact, did two weeks on that. Uh, we talked about the mystery uh, of the Transfiguration, the glory of God revealed uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. We looked at, in the, the Passion Week, we looked at Gethsemane. Um, we spent a couple of weeks on the mystery of the cross, And then last week, we looked at Christ's descent uh, into Hades, looking at scriptures in both the New and Old Testament. Um, So it was really interesting. In fact, what I'm going to do, even as I'm going, could I get two people with good, loud voices? One of you, would you prepare Matthew 28, 1 to 10? Who wants to do that one? Okay, real good, loud voice in a minute. And the other person, would you do John 20, 1 and 2, and then 11 to 18? Who's up for that? I'm sure someone will volunteer when we need you. Okay, (laughs) great. Um, So tonight, as we look at the mystery of the resurrection, tonight I'm really consolidating uh, what some different... Uh, theologians and writers from three very different streams had to say, and and I'm also drawing from church fathers and so forth, but I very specifically wanted to draw from three theological uh, traditions. I'm I'm, uh, drawing from Joseph Ratzinger, who many of us know as Pope Benedict, from uh, N.T. Wright, for the evangelical perspective, and uh, Timothy Ware, Bishop Ware, uh, from the Orthodox perspective. So I just thought I'd tell you that as we go at this, we're going at it from three different sides. Could, uh, could I get that Matthew 28, 1 to 10, please, nice and loud? Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and said on His appearance was as like lightning, and his clothes was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. He has said, Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, He is going before you to Galilee, that you will see him. And I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with great fear and joy, and ran and 
to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and looked and hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me. Thank you. Um, I realize with this microphone, I hope the people at home could hear that. Who will read the John passage? Yeah, John 21 and 2, and then 11 to 18. I'll hold this near to you. Okay. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the, to- the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they they have laid him. Verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look at the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he said these things to her. Thank you. That's great. We notice here that, in fact, none of the four gospel accounts describe the actual resurrection. They describe what took place afterwards. And uh, what took place Sunday morning in the hours and days following, but not the resurrection itself. The resurrection is an event taking place within the mystery of God between the Father and the Son. So it will always be a mystery. I'm going to try to break this down because, of course, we could talk about the mystery of the resurrection for many, many, many days, and we're not going to do that. So I want to break it down into three or four kind of headings. And the first one is looking at at the resurrection of Jesus. Um, both the early church fathers uh, and current theologians from all different streams agree that with Paul, uh, agree with Paul that Christianity stands and falls on the resurrection of Christ. That is the conservative, the evangelical, the orthodox, the Catholic view. We're going to refer several times to, to verses from the great resurrection chapter of Paul, which is 1 Corinthians 15. So starting at verse 13, Paul said this, For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, um, 
then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. He's really emphasizing this. Um, it, it, as I said, for Paul and traditional uh, Christianity, our faith, our Christian faith, stands and falls on the resurrection. So let's look a little bit at, uh, at what their experience was, how they reacted to what they perceived in the resurrection. In, uh, in the confessional passages, largely those are Paul and, uh, and even into the early church fathers, we see a really interesting perspective, fascinating perspective to me, of the uh, witnesses uh, to the resurrection that is quite different from the narrative tradition. The narrative tradition is simply the narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the confessional tradition, I don't know how many of you ladies notice this, but only men are named as witnesses to the resurrection. Uh, how many women have noticed that before? Yes, I see some hands. Um, why is this? Well, it's because in the Jewish tradition, of that day, only men could be admitted as witnesses. The testimony of women was inadmissible. So that was why in this confessional tradition, they, it's like they deleted the women's experience with the resurrection. However, in the narratives, the Gospels, they're, they weren't bound by this judicial structure. And so just as only women stayed with Jesus at the cross, except for the beloved disciple, John, interesting, the first resurrection encounters uh, were two and four women. I kind of like that a lot. <laughs> resurrection, secondly, was totally unexpected. They didn't have a book to read about it. They didn't have Sunday school classes to tell them about it. They were confronted with something that was so far outside of their frame of reference. And the resurrection, by the way, was totally rejected by Jews and Gentiles alike. But for those first disciples, the resurrection was as real as the cross. Their witness was about the tangible resurrection. Not about we sensed his presence or we, we knew his spirit was with us. It was tangible. It was physical. They could say, he spoke to me. I touched him. Um, I ate with him. It was very, very tangible. But now we move into that wonderful word that keeps coming up through this whole study of paradox. And as I've said again and again, we're not that comfortable with paradox. And uh, yet here it is, the resurrection just confronts us. Jesus was not just a resuscitated person. He wasn't like Lazarus. He was completely different. The resurrected Christ. On the one hand, he appears as a man like other men. We see him walking along the road to Emmaus. He invites Thomas uh, to touch his wounds. He says to the disciples in Luke, 
hey, could you give me a piece of fish? Um, he is present bodily. But here's the other side of the paradox. Yet, they and the disciples didn't recognize Jesus at first. On that same Emmaus road, they didn't know it was Jesus. Mary Magdalene thought he was the gardener. John 21, where he says, have you caught any fish? They just wonder, who is this guy? And even, they're so unsure that even as they're sitting with him around the fire, they're kind of whispering to themselves, is he or isn't he? Well, the resurrected Christ no longer fully belonged to our world. Yet, he was fully present in our world. I want to say that again. The resurrected Christ did not any longer belong to our world. But he was completely present in it, of course. Their testimony, again, was to physically interacting with a risen but very physical Jesus. His resurrection changed the boundaries of their experience. He did things they had no frame of reference for. He would just suddenly appear in a room. He, he came through walls. He suddenly, just as suddenly disappeared. He's just gone. Remember the, the two guys in Luke 24 and, 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 and when he eats, they go, oh my word. And as soon as they figure out who he is, he's gone. Jesus' presence is entirely physical and yet he is not bound by the laws of space and time. I love Mary Magdalene, probably many of us do. And I love, you know, she's, she's in, at the tomb in both the synoptics and in John. But there's something so powerful and personal in John's account. Uh, I, John can paint pictures with words that are, to me, are remarkable. Just think of what Mary Magdalene was going through. She, she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. Where have you put him? Where have you taken him? And then he says, Mary. And in an instant, she goes from complete lack of recognition to recognition. Rabboni, my Lord. Imagine what it was like to experience that in an instant. So the resurrection was profoundly outside of the disciples' experience. But it was beyond doubt. They had no doubt. History tells us that, that all but John were martyred for their testimony of the resurrected Christ. And yet, it's filled with paradox. And this takes us back to the Christophanies that we talked about, I think, the second week of this series in the Old Testament. Again, Christ was physically present. He was, we read about him in, uh, oh, in uh, Genesis 18 with, with Abraham. He was there. Um, he was there with Joshua as he wrestled with him, and then he wasn't. Uh, he was with Joshua. Did I say Joshua twice? Jacob and Joshua. And he was. But their experience of him was outside the laws of, of their known 
rules of existence. Like Paul, the early church fathers insisted on a physical resurrection of Christ. I insist on a physical resurrection. Some of the, some of the theologians I, I read, not many of them, but there's a few of which there are some great things to glean. Um, I noticed I was reading N.T. Wright the other day, and he was talking about this great insight from another theologian who does not believe in the resurrection. I absolutely believe in the physical resurrection. In fact, I think Paul insisted on it. I think the church fathers insisted on it. I think this is orthodoxy. So let me give you a few quotes from the early church fathers because you know how much I gleaned from them. Ignatius, who, by the way, I said last week, was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. Ignatius and Clement, both direct disciples. Uh, Polycarp, too. And uh, Ignatius said this, For I know and believe that he was also in the flesh after the resurrection. And when he came to those with Peter, he said to them, Take, touch me, and see that I am not a bodiless spirit. And immediately they touched him and believed, mingling with his flesh and his blood. Irenaeus, another early church father from about oh, 175 AD, who I like very, very much, uh, said this, Christ arose in the substance of flesh and showed to the disciples the marks of the nails and the opening in his side. These were the proofs of his flesh which rose from the dead. In the same way, says the apostle, he will raise us up through his power. He is, he, he is, uh, physical, and yet he's, I don't know, what's a word, transphysical at the same time. These fathers also explicitly reject, these and many other fathers, reject as heretical an interpretation of the resurrection in the New Testament that excludes the body of flesh and blood from participation in eternal salvation. They all insist that this is not an insignificant question of doctrine, but essential to the Christian deposit of faith. Let me give you Justin and then Jerome. And there are some who say that even Jesus himself was after the resurrection in a spiritual body only, no longer in the flesh, but provided only the appearance of the flesh to the disciples. By this teaching, they seek to defraud our flesh of the promise of salvation. Jerome, the very concept of a resurrection without flesh and bones, without blood and members, is a contradiction in terms. So I want you to know that I have a firm conviction, I, a stronger word than conviction. I mean, I hold to the physical resurrection of Christ. I see it in the scriptures. I see it in the church fathers. I see it in the early church. And uh, we hold to that. I hold to that at least. So let's talk now about this new life form this mystery of this new resurrected life, because he's not a resuscitated man. Remember, he's not like Lazarus. So the first thing is the principal point about Christ's resurrection is that in taking place in this present world, it is the defining event of the new creation. It happened in this world, 
and yet it defines the new creation. The new creation is being born at and with his resurrection. Let me give you a quote from Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. In Jesus' resurrection, a new possibility of human existence is attained that affects everyone and happens uh, up, uh, I got the wrong word there, uh, creates a new kind of future for mankind. Jesus' resurrection is a new life form. It is a life that is no longer subject to dying. Paul uses the word decay quite a lot for that. At the resurrection, matter changes into a new reality. We we get a foretaste of that. That's why I talked about the incarnation being so important. We get a foretaste of matter changing into a new reality in the Gospels, don't we? For example, he turned water into wine. For example, he took a little bit of bread and fish and fed 5,000 people with it. That this is the new reality. This is the new creation. Um, and so the nature of existence has changed. It's a new kind of union with God. Some of you know that in His grace, I have on a number of occasions watched the new reality, the resurrected Christ reality, penetrate this reality. And I've seen food multiply, and I've seen uh, medicine multiply, and once I went from this city to that city, and I don't know how I got there. You've heard me share some of those stories. I think this is this new creation breaking in. And of course, as I said last week in response to a question we had, that the kingdom is increasing and increasing and increasing. Okay, everybody still with me? Another church father, you knew you'd have to get another one, Tertullian, said, from now on, spirit and blood have a place within God. <laughs> Resurrection is another and even deeper dimension of incarnation. In the incarnation, which we talked a lot about two months ago, the Creator entered His creation. Remember I said the Creator became the creature? Do you guys remember me saying that? Uh, the incarnation was about the birth, life, and death of Jesus. In the resurrection, Christ becomes the first expression of the new creation. His resurrection is a totally new kind of event. Now, second point on this is now there's a totally new kind of future for the creation. It has begun at that moment. New creation began at the moment of his resurrection. And it will reach its culmination, its conclusion, its climax at Christ's second coming. In Jesus' second coming, in the same body in which he was crucified and rose again, will complete the narrative of the incarnation, and so will fulfill the story of creation. I'm going to give you, I'm going to quote a couple of things I told you about the incarnation 
a month or two ago because I don't expect you to remember. The full outworking of Jesus' resurrection, Paul affirms, will bring about the glorification of the whole created order. Remember Romans eight nineteen to 22? And this is the context for the church's celebration of the mystery of Christ and his resurrection. This is the great celebration because all of creation is now begun to turn, to change. Christ's resurrection uh, is the first fruits. It's, it's not just about my resurrection. It is all of creation. It is the recreation of the entire cosmos. This is the triune God's eternal, unchanging, unshakable plan for all eternity. With Jesus' resurrection, this recreation has begun. Now, Paul uses the word hope 47 times. I was fascinated by that. We, we use the word hope for kind of a, a, an optimistic speculation. You know, I hope my candidate gets elected. I hope I get a new car. I hope whatever. That is not the biblical meaning of hope in the New Testament. It means waiting for a certain future. Very different, isn't it? There's nothing speculative about it. And Paul calls us up to that 47 times, waiting for a certain future. Paul understood that all of the cosmos was, because of Christ's resurrection, going to be transformed forever. Say forever. forever. When we take hold of the truth of this, I think it changes our worldview. There's a different future. There's a time that is different from this time where the the oppressors, the unscrupulous, the dishonest no longer have the upper hand. Rather than an ad this week, I wanted to take this moment to celebrate you, the Impact Nations family. This family is made up of amazing individuals from all over the globe who are united behind our goal to demonstrate good news to the poor. The Impact Nations family includes servant leaders in the developing world who are committed to run into the darkness to bring the light of the world to the poor and the broken. Our family includes volunteers who will travel to the ends of the earth through slums and jungles in order to bring the reality of heaven to those who desperately need hope. This family includes thousands of donors and prayer warriors who stand firm for justice, crying out to God that he would make all things new. Sure, this pandemic may have changed the way we go about things, but it has not hindered our resolve. It has not kept you, the Impact Nations family, from pursuing justice for the poor. In fact, even in the midst of the financial and emotional strain that this global crisis has laid upon each of you, your commitment to the cause has only grown. In the last four weeks, the Impact Nations family has banded together to feed thousands of families in six different nations. Our conservative estimate is that together we have provided 423,000 meals to day laborers who would have otherwise starved. That is the power of Jesus at work in each of you. Thank you for responding to the call with faith and love. If you want to learn more about this effort and see the stories of lives rescued, visit impactnations.com slash feeding. And now, back to the podcast. 
this worldview of a new creation changes our way of seeing and interacting with our world. And we become empowered again by hope. 1 Peter 1.3 He's given us a living hope. I love that verse. This is a resurrection worldview. Folks, <coughs> if we have a resurrection worldview, not escapist, I'll get to that in a minute, but if we understand that as I told you last week and the week before, whereas before the cross, decay was at work in the creation, now life is at work. If we begin to understand that, it changes the way we see our future, the way we see our world. And I think it's how the church becomes what it's supposed to be, a prophetic people. And I've said to you at different times through this series, biblically speaking, being a prophetic people has very little to do with when when you gather on Sunday, whether in your form of worship, somebody says, thus saith the Lord. I mean, that may be fine. We don't despise prophetic utterance. I know the Bible. But a prophetic people live in the reality of new creation. They live pulling the future into the present. They live with this certain future hope, not speculation. And so it changes the way we interact with our world, and I think it empowers us to become a prophetic people. This is our hope. This is our hope. New creation. This is our biblical vision for the future for all of the cosmos. Our gospel is ultimately a, a gospel that is cosmos. It's cosmological. It is universal. It is a cosmic gospel. That's why I've told you through this series that, that we have a, he came to, to reach the whole cosmos. If we have a cosmic gospel, it changes the way we see our lives, our purpose. We, rec we begin to recognize the movement of God. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15 as our reference point with Paul. Now I'm at verse 21. So you see, he tells them, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Verse 24. After that, the end will come, when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scripture says God has put all things under his authority. Resurrection is so much bigger than my resurrection, but it includes it. <laughs> so now let's talk about you and me. What does resurrection mean for us? For much of the last... <laughs> I was thinking about it. It's hard to put a, a time on it, but I would say the last 250 years, there's been a great emphasis on personal salvation. 
and it reflects the highly individualistic nature of a society. The, the gospel that I heard week after week in, in my church after I got saved, I didn't go to church before that, but that gospel was always about you need to get saved. You need to settle your eternal destiny. It was purely individualistic. And I dare say, if we went into the churches in our city, that's what we would by and large hear when it was time to give an invitation. Okay? And I think this is a reflection of the increasingly individualistic nature of society. Uh, when we make salvation and the resurrection about my destiny, then we lose the bigger and more biblical picture of God's plan for all of his creation. I'll say it again and several times more tonight. The resurrection is about re-creation. And when we have that individualistic worldview of salvation, it, we pay very little attention to this, to the great purpose of God in resurrection. N.T. Wright points out that we are living in a time dominated by two myths. The first myth is, and we're surrounded by this, is that we as society are steadily progressing. We're, we're, we're getting better and better at all kinds of stuff, technologically and, and in every dimension. But as N.T. Wright says, this is a myth that ignores and therefore cannot deal with the root issue of evil. And we talked a lot about that a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the cross. It's not just sins, it's sin. It's that root issue of evil. So that's the first myth, and we're surrounded by it in our media, in our politicians, in everything. And then here's the second myth, and it's, it reacts to that. The, the second myth is, is kind of a negative myth where the purpose, it says, no, we're not progressing. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And therefore, the purpose of the, of the Christian faith is to get out of here. It's to go to heaven. I talked about a personal evacuation plan on a little Facebook post I did a month or two ago. Boy, did I get some feedback on that. <laughs> Probably got dropped off several people's Christmas card list. But, um, but you see, this idea that everything's worse and worse and it's all about me, it's all about me, this almost inevitably leads to a desire to escape this fallen world. We get into rapture mentality and, and so forth. The early Christians would not have begun to understand a rapture mentality. It would, it, 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 it may as well have been speaking to them in Martian. But they believed that God was going to do for his creation, the cosmos, what he did for Jesus at his resurrection. And of course there's a personal meaning to Christ's resurrection. But but it's only a, a part of his greater meaning, which is recreation. Now, the first hint of this meaning 
is found in the exchange in Luke between Christ and the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So I want to talk for a couple of minutes about paradise. Because I know there's some confusion about heaven and paradise. And last week we talked about Christ descending into Hades. Um, so what is paradise? It is a place of sleep for the body. But for the real person, our soul, our spirit, um, life continues. What does that mean? In paradise, it's not limbo. It's not, uh, Tom asked a great question about purgatory last week. And uh, he and I exchanged some emails on that this week. In paradise, we are in a conscious state of the love and presence of the Lord. Paradise is a place of refreshment, of peace, and of delight. It is my deep conviction, because I felt like the Lord gave me that conviction suddenly last year at one moment. We will go from this life into paradise as immediate as drawing our next breath. Um, in paradise, we share in the communion of saints. Remember, I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. We said that last week, part of the Apostles' Creed. So it is, it is a place of communion with all those who've gone before us. However, paradise is not the same as heaven. Wright has coined the phrase, probably many of you have heard it, life after life after death. And here's what he means by that. When we die, we immediately go to the, the state or the place known as paradise, which I've just tried to describe to you. It's conscious. Um, it's a place of, of joy and rest and communion with the saints who've gone before us. Um, we, um, I think, and I'm not sure, because nobody can be completely sure on all of this, this side of the bar, <laughs> using Tennyson's term, crossing the bar, um, but I think that those who chose not to follow Jesus are in Hades, which we talked about last week. You can, if anyone following this week, you can go and, and look at Christ's descent into Hades. You know, whether or not being in Hades is permanent, as we said last week, there are uh, various points of view, and I won't go over that again tonight. But, there, but I believe that those who are in Christ go to paradise. Then, at Christ's triumphant return to earth, which is known as the second coming, and I believe in a very literal second coming, that's when our, quote, dead bodies will be resurrected. I believe that what will happen in that moment is we will be given new but very real physical bodies. But I think with a difference 
Just like I talked a few minutes ago about Christ's resurrected body. Well, I think it's him, but I'm not sure it's him, and so forth. Um, so I think that there'll be a difference, but they will be, uh, it will be our bodies. Paul addressed this question in 1 Corinthians 15 again. I'm going to give you 35 to 37 and then 42 to 44. He must have spent a lot of time on this because it was so important. So we don't slip into... We, we have this view, if you ask even many, many Christians, they have this vague view that what is heaven and what, is, what happens after I die, well, I kind of go into this nebulous state of, of just being in the presence of God and it's, you know, whether we're floating on clouds or whatever, that it's disembodied, heaven is disembodied. That comes straight from Plato. That does not come from the scriptures at all. That heaven is a body. Okay? So, Phil, you and I can go for a walk. We can be together. All right? So, Paul says this, But if someone may ask, How will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? He says, What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. It, verse 42, it is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they'll be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They're buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. Irenaeus, again, church father from about 175, neither the structure nor the substance of creation is destroyed. It is only the outward form of this world that passes away, that is to say, the conditions produced by the fall. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and in this new heaven and new earth, man shall abide forever new and forever conversing with God. So what will this resurrected body and eternal life be like? I go back to what I taught you about the Incarnation. Uh, from Colossians 1, 19 to 20. Those making notes, Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is, I believe, the clearest, most powerful Christological hymn in all of the New Testament. 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven... All things are reconciled. This is the movement of Christ's creation. This is I'm tying in what I'm telling you tonight with what I told you several weeks ago about incarnation. This is the whole movement of his creation. Its destiny is the reconciliation of all things. It is not conditional. Creation has a common identity that is driving the cosmos forward. Do you hear what I'm saying? The cosmos will have been truly created only when it reaches its consummation in the union of all things in Christ. This is what Paul called the mystery of his purpose. 
In the resurrection, we will be engaged in the eternal activity of the triune God. You're not going to be floating around on a cloud playing a harp. <laughs> Remember that commercial for uh, Philadelphia cream cheese a few years ago? Drove me nuts. <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit more. You guys still alert here? We're all right? Let's talk a little more on the resurrection in eternity. This eternal resurrection. So remember, the cross, the descent into hell, and the resurrection are the full manifestation of the victory of Christ. We talked a lot about the last two weeks, Christos Victor, the victory of Christ. What is, what is demonstrated and established in the resurrection is that love is stronger than hatred, life is stronger than death. Because Christ is risen, we need never be afraid of any dark or evil force in the universe. Remember, he opened the gates. There is no place where God is not. We talked about that last week. Secondly, the resurrection is about eternal and cosmic joy. It is a joy that will never dim, can never be defeated. It can't even be altered. Resurrection is the new recreating life force in the universe. I read this excerpt from a letter from a prisoner in the Soviet Gulag. I had the profound experience in 1992 of having about an hour and a half with five men who had spent, most of them, about 25 years in a Soviet gulag. You know, those are the Siberian concentration camps. And they were all believers, and they came out of there not talking about how terrible their experience was, which was terrible, but, but this wonderful Christ. So let me just give you this little quote when we talk about this, the, the resurrection power which comes with joy, which can never be dimmed. He wrote this, The deepest foundation of hope and joy is the resurrection. Easter is an explosion of joy. It is the explosion of cosmic joy at the triumph of life after the overwhelming sorrow over death. Let all the world, both invisible and visible, keep holiday. For Christ, our, eterni uh, our eternity is risen. All things are now, it's Christ our eternal, sorry. All things are now filled with the certainty of life, whereas before all had been moving steadily toward death. Isn't that incredible? Written from a gulag. So today, our relationship with the triune God carries with it the seeds of eternity. I'm telling you again and again and again, if we can understand who we really are, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I've told you the rhythm of my morning prayer. You're in me and I'm in you. And you're in me and I'm in you. John emphasized that many times. If we can begin to understand that our relationship with the triune God 
carries the very seeds of all eternity for all of the cosmos. Because of the cross and the resurrection, we are eternal beings already. Already. A new heaven and a new earth means that we are not saved from this body, but we are saved in this body. We are not saved from a material world, but we are saved with it. All of creation, Romans 8, all of creation is groaning, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Part of the mystery of the resurrection is that our salvation involves the reconciliation of what? All things. In the new earth, all of life will share in immortality. Eternity speaks of a couple of things that I think we need to remember. First, eternity suggests never-ending, inexhaustible variety. In the kingdom, my unique personhood will be forever unfolding. He, Revelation says he gives you, he gives me a name, special name that only he and I know about me, that only you and he know about him. There is a profound uniqueness. This is paradox. There's this incredible paradox of my unique personhood, but it will be forever, say forever, forever. unfolding. My relationship with the triune God forever will go deeper and deeper. No wonder Paul called these the unsearchable riches of Christ. Remember Jesus said in, in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. Those in His eternal kingdom, in this resurrected life, is, it's the ever-expanding recreation. And yet, and so there's this incredible thing, we're part of something cosmic. And at the same time, each of us will find their own special place and their own special work. I go to prepare a place for you, Patrick. Isn't that interesting? So much more than, oh, I get a room in heaven. Second thing eternity suggests is unending movement, growth, advancement, we are forever going to be advancing forward. It is resurrection, recreation is more than a return to the original garden. Which again is rather influenced from, by Plato. It is more than the original. It is something that goes on forever and ever and ever. And we're always changing. We're always advancing. We're always growing. There's always new revelation. Cardinal Newman said this, To live is to change, and to be perfect 
is to have changed often. Isn't that good? Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers, one of the great church fathers, um, he says something, and again, we've got to embrace paradox, folks. We, we, we so easily fall off on one side or the other because we can't live with truth intention. We talked about that two weeks ago with, with different um, atonement motifs. I don't really want to call them theories, atonement motifs, how they, they couldn't hold tension together. But So think of that, how we embrace paradox when you hear Gregory of Nyssa. The essence of perfection consists precisely in never becoming perfect, but in always reaching forward to some higher perfection that lies beyond. Isn't that good? Do you want me to say that again? This is Gregory of Nyssa, NYSSA. The essence of perfection consists precisely in never becoming perfect, but in always reaching forward to some higher perfection that lies beyond. Because God is both eternal and infinite, our constant reaching forward will be without limit. God grows eternally nearer to us. Isn't that good? For all eternity, he gets closer and closer and closer. And yet, he remains the divine other. Even as we behold him, we continue to advance into the mystery of who this triune God is. And so we conclude with Paul's great climactic decree to the Corinthians. And this is how I want to finish. It's the last climax to chapter 15. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies." Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into the bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And there is just touching on the mystery of the resurrection. It's a lot bigger than my personal evacuation plan. <laughs> Have you prayed the prayer so that you'll go to heaven? <laughs> the gospel, I said from the beginning of this series, the gospel is bigger, way bigger, way more powerful, way more inclusive than we ever imagined. Yes. Than we ever imagined. So tonight, as I told you, I just drew straight from those three that I told you. So you got 
you got Catholic, you got Evangelical, and you got Orthodox. Because truth is truth. Jesus is the truth. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. I mentioned that this was the final teaching in the Mystery of Christ series, but don't worry, we've got one more episode for you. Next week, we will once again be joined by our friend Brad Jerzak to further discuss the resurrection. We'd love your input. If you've got any questions from this episode or anything, really, email them to podcast at impactnations.com. We'll be sure to discuss it with Brad next week. We'll be recording live at impactnations.com slash family on Wednesday, May 6th at 9.30 a.m. Mountain Time. And we'd love it if you could join us. Hey, thanks again for being a part of the Impact Nations family. Have a great week.